Praise God. This morning, it's a, a joy to be here, and thank you for having me here. Uh, and uh, I, I, you know, when I join young people in worship, I get excited uh, so much. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are a happening person. That's why we have a happening church, because God is making us happening. Today, I want to speak uh, about the whole area of receiving your miracle. How many of you want to receive your miracle? You know, I want to talk about the first miracle, Jesus turning water into wine in Cana of Galilee, and I want us to draw some parallels from this. What is a miracle? You know, a miracle is an extraordinary event with a positive outcome, uh, which is not explicable by natural scientific laws, and we attribute it to God. It is, if you like, you know, a, 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 a paradox with a divine cause. Now, many people hate paradoxes because in the scientific world in which we live today, people think paradoxes don't appear. And, you know, when you have paradoxes and conflicting truths, you know, it uh, doesn't happen in the scientific world. It's people who don't believe in science uh, that you have these paradoxes uh, appearing. But I want to tell you, uh, paradoxes occur in our everyday life. What is a paradox? A paradox is where you have two conflicting truths and they coexist. And you can't, you can't resolve it. It's a paradox. See, the, the red button verifies the blue button. It says the blue button is true. The blue button falsifies the red button. It says the red button is false, which means by falsifying the red button, it falsifies the blue button, falsifies itself. So you can see that this is a paradox. You see, only one of the two buttons can exist. Yeah. Or none of the two buttons should exist. But if the two buttons coexist, it is a paradox. Now, paradoxes often appear in everyday conversation. Those of you who've been married uh, will realize that whenever you get into an argument, Pastor Nancy and I, we never have arguments. We just have animated discussions. That's all. Okay. You know, sometimes some of these paradoxes arise when we say stupid things and we say things. And I remember a couple, they're having a very uh, big argument and uh, it's about families and one one, the wife said to the husband, it's not fair. You, you love your side of your family more than my side of my family. That's what the wife said. And the husband said, that's absolutely not true. I love your mother-in-law more than my mother-in-law. <laughs> that's a paradox, you see? Okay, okay. Obviously, if he loves his mother-in-law more than her mother-in-law, yeah, uh, if you love her mother-in-law more than his, then it is, uh, that's a, that would be a paradox. Okay, but anyway, uh, th this is what a paradox is. You know, a paradox is two conflicting truths. And people think paradoxes shouldn't exist. But science itself is full of paradox. For example, uh, space-time is a paradox. Many of us experience time as a linear flow. But Einstein showed us that time is not linear. It is woven into the fabric of three-dimensional space to form a fourth dimension. So much so that actually if you have a force like gravity that's strong enough, you can actually bend time. You can warp it. You can theoretically even reverse time so that it is possible to laugh at a joke before it is told. <laughs> Einstein showed that. Now, light is also a paradox. Uh, light sometimes behaves as a wave, sometimes as a particle. Which is it? It is both N. Uh, but sometimes it's a wave, sometimes it's a particle. So which? It's both N. But how can it be that it coexists? It's a paradox. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's a paradox. You know, many other things are paradox. You know, the whole area of quantum mechanics deals with paradoxes. Because at subatomic level, where the existence of quarks and leptons are, and gluons and all these subatomic Everything is a fuzz and a haze. You can't do anything with clear determination. The uncertainty principle tells us that, you know, at subatomic level, at subatomic particle uh, behavior, you can never determine the position and the momentum of a particle subatomically at any given point in time. If you determine its position, you can't determine its momentum. If you determine its momentum with accuracy, you can't determine its position. Everything is a fuzz. But how can it be? that it just is a fuss. It just is a fuss. And matter itself is a paradox. You know, you know what we see, touch, and feel, and can measure subatomically as well as 
what we see around us, as well as the whole universe around us, with all the galaxy and the constellations, the planets, and everything you can see around us, including vacuum that we can measure around us, all this constitutes only 4% of the matter that's in the universe. Somebody say, wow. Only 4%. The remaining 96% of the universe is made out of matter we don't know what and we don't understand. 70% of it is made up of uh, dark energy, 75%. And dark energy is the energy that causes the planets to repel each other. And not only repel, causing all the planets and the constellations and the galaxies not only to repel each other, but to move away from each other, but to move away at this given second with an increasing speed than ever before. It accelerates with time in terms of repulsion. That's what dark energy, what is dark energy? Nobody knows. What is this force that's causing it to? Nobody knows. And what is dark matter? Dark matter is an unseen matter which we don't know what it is, what makes up dark matter. We can't even measure it, but we know it's out there because it's causing the galaxies to spin round at a rate that's faster than what you see in terms of matter that's there. So because we don't understand it, we go back to Star Wars. We call it dark energy or dark matter. So in physics, we're all going over to the dark side. <laughs> That's the bulk of the matter. And just in case you think all this is fanciful flights of imagination, the people who discovered this stuff actually won Nobel Prizes. Albert Einstein won it for the photoelectric effect of light. Werner Heisenberg wanted for the uncertainty principle. And just in 2011, the Nobel in Physics was awarded to three persons who discovered dark energy. Adam Rice, on your left, of the United States, and Saul Perlmutter of the United States, and Brian Smith, on your extreme right, uh, from Australia. They discovered dark energy to the surprise of the scientific world. These are not flights of imagination. Paradoxes is the bastion of science at subatomic level and at intergalactic constellation cosmological level. Now, we say paradoxes exist in the Bible. What paradoxes exist in the Bible? God is three, yet one. We sang it just now. How can it be? They say, that's absolute rubbish. You can have three and yet one. Three, you know, one plus one plus one equals three. You can have three being one. It's a paradox. Jesus is both God and man. That's a paradox. How can he be God and, God and man? Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. How can somebody be conceived by God and born of a, another person, a woman? Uh, the Bible was written by both God and man. That's just flights of fantasy but these are the fundamental orthodox truths in Christianity. That every time somebody questions that, you take them back to the basis of science, the very foundations of science. It's full in itself of paradoxes. So don't believe people who say in the scientific world, everything is clear cut, cut and dried. It's not. The very foundations of science at quantum physics level is a paradox. You know, when you understand this, we understand how God breaks through in miracles. You know, for many years, when I was, a, when I was converted, I, I just thought, yeah, God can do miracles. Uh, he will do miracles once in a while, uh, but largely, you're not going to see any miracles you know, for the rest of your life. I, I didn't very much believe in miracles. I, I read about it in the Bible, but you know, I don't expect God to intervene in anything. Until I was a first-year medical student, and I, I was in the UK, and then in that summer, I went on a summer crusade with Operation Mobilization. And uh, we went to Italy to share the gospel uh, in the streets of it Italy. Had to learn a bit of Italian, and we just went. And we were there for six weeks. Uh, many people came to know the Lord. God did hear wonderful things. And then at the end of six weeks, uh, we were making our way back over the Italian Dolomites, the Italian Dolomite Mountains, the mountain that separates the northern part of Italy from Austria. We were crossing the Dolomites onto Australia and eventually uh, back to France and eventually to Belgium, where many of us were about to catch our ferry back to the UK. Uh, it was, and up on the Dolomites, something happened. I was with about 20 other young people. 
uh, and they were all Europeans, and we had a great time, and we were in a rotten old bread van. That was the, the, the van that had taken us to Italy and bring us back. And I was sitting in the front, uh, in the front uh, seat with a, with a driver, and suddenly the brakes failed when we reached the top of the Dolomite Mountains. And, uh, but he was quick thinking. I saw him stepped on the pedal, brake pedal, nothing, and he, he, he pulled up his hand brakes and you know, down his clutch, uh, his gear, and eventually brought the car to the side of the road. Oh, it was a narrow escape, you know, we could have just careened down a, a precipice, but, but it was a narrow escape. It was one o'clock in the morning, and we heard the winds howling outside. And uh, we jumped out of the car, lifted up the bonnet, and then we shone a torch in, and there it was, the brake cylinder had cracked, and there was brake fluid leaking. And that's why the brakes had failed. And then we went back, and the leader, there was, there was 20 of us, and it was tall, the leader of our group was a tall Swedish guy. And I said to him, I said, the brakes have failed, uh, and uh, we need a mechanic. He said, no, we need to pray. I said, we need a mechanic. Uh, he said, no, we pray. Uh, so being very obedient, we got down to praying. And I thought to myself, good night. It's still one o'clock in the morning, up there, we need a mechanic. So we prayed. I remember us just praying in the bread van for about an hour. And then he said, I think God has done something. I don't know how he did, he knew, but he said, I think God has done something. And then I said, will you check it again? He said, will you check it again? And so the driver jumped back into his seat and he stepped on the brake pedal. And instead of hitting the floorboards, just bang like that, it met resistance. You know, and I thought something had happened. And so we both jumped out we, uh, we lifted up the carbon, shone the torch in there. Whatever it was, the brake fluid cracked, had, had, that it was no longer leaking. And now we lifted up the cap of the brake cylinder, and there it was. Some dark fluid was inside. Now, question I asked you, can God create brake fluid? <laughs> Some of you are laughing, you see? You're not quite sure. Can he create brake fluid? I tell you this, I do not have any explanation for it up to today. And the only reason why I'm telling you this is because I saw it with my own eyes. I do not have an explanation. But somewhere along the line, God sealed up the crack in the brake uh, cylinder, put some fluid back, whether it's brake fluid or fluid that would, would function as brake fluid, I don't know. But we all got back into the van, we started the car, and we made our way down the mountains, eventually crossed into Austria and France, and then eventually got to Belgium, and I caught my ferry back to England on time. Okay. And that experience turned me from apathy to awe. I said, wow, this God, don't play, play. <laughs> he actually can intervene in our human circumstances. I remember a Church of England minister, a Church of England man who was very intellectual. He was also a, a Christian, believed in God, just like me, but you know, doesn't believe in miracles. And because he was English, he, he just think all these American miracles that are reported are just for show. So he was very skeptical, especially when he read about them. And he decided to go across to America, this was in the 70s, for a Catherine Kuhlman concert, a Catherine Kuhlman crusade. How many of you heard of Catherine Kuhlman? She was a great healing evangelist in the United States. You know, a bit showy, but she was, she was, she was, she was a woman of God. And this Church of England ministers, quite an intellectual, believes in Jesus, believes the Bible, but doesn't believe in too much of his miracles. He's very cynical. You know, he, he came to the rally and said, this is his, his testimony, he sat in the front row, and just to get the, the whole feel and the whole scenery, and during the time of the, the, the rally, Catherine Kuhlman said, there's somebody here in this vast auditorium, somebody here towards the front row, you're being healed right now. I want you to come up and get onto the platform and walk up. And two seats away, a man got up, walked onto the platform. And Catherine said, you couldn't walk before. He says, no, I, I had a very bad limp and I couldn't walk before. Can you walk now? He walked normally. Can you run? And he started running on the stage. And everybody stood up and clapped. It was rapturous applause. But this Church of England clergyman, he had his arms folded in absolute cynicism. He looked at it. And he turned to the old man who was sitting next to him. He said, you don't believe all this stuff, do you? An old man said, yeah, I do. I said, he said, come on, that guy who just got up, he was obviously a plant, he was being planted there. <laughs> you know, so at the right moment, this guy comes up and mimics as though he's been healed. You go, what, everybody's excited, offering goes up. 
So it's obviously, it's obviously a plant there. And he turned and looked at the old man. The old man said, no. And he saw the old man had tears running down his eyes. He said, that was not a plant. That was my son. He couldn't walk before. And from that moment, that Church of England clergyman, I know his name, I'm not repeating it, his cynicism turned to conviction. And today I want to take you on a journey because we live in a 21st century scientific world. And many of us think, well, you know, if I believe that God does miracles today, you know, I'm like an, an outlier. Most of the people in my college don't believe it. And I don't have any defense because, you know, I have just the Bible to tell me miracles do happen. My pastor tells me miracles do happen. I read the scriptures, it tells me miracles happen, but is it relevant today? I want to show you that if you open your eyes and open your heart and believe what the Bible says today, and you know that God is alive today in your heart and you experience Him, you can receive the miracles for your life. And He wants you to understand the principles by which miracles come into your life. How many of you, let me ask again, you want to receive a miracle for your life? Can I see your hands? Lift them up. Now, I'm going to take you back to the first miracle because there's nothing better than take you back to the first miracle to draw from the way Jesus operates and how God operates in bringing miracles into our lives. And what are the necessary postures by which we draw the supernatural work of God into our lives? Let's read uh, John chapter 2, the account of the turning of water into wine. I want you to read it so loud, so loud. Yeah, as loud as you can. Are you ready now? Okay, let's go now. There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six jars of stone, each containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he called the bridegroom and said, Starts with the good wine and then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of the miracles Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee. And his disciples believed him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. First question I want to ask, whose wedding was that? It was probably the wedding of one of Mary's relatives. Why do we say that? Because when they ran out of wine, they went to Mary first. They went to Mary first. Now, you must understand, wine in a Middle Eastern wedding, you know, you must never run out of wine in a Middle Eastern wedding. Because if you run out of wine in a Middle Eastern wedding, they will be shamed down the centuries, your whole family. It is like running out of food in a Chinese wedding. Ha 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 You run out of food, people will talk about you and gossip about your family down the corridors of time for centuries. Do you know what I mean? And you have nowhere to show your face. You cannot run out of food. You can run out of anything but not food at a Chinese wedding. So it was crisis. They had run out of wine. It's a shameful thing to run out of wine. And the servants found there was not much wine left. So they ran immediately to Mary. Now, surely she must be a member of the family. Because if you run out of food in a Chinese wedding, right, would you go and tell your guests uh, first? Would you go and go, tong, 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 hey, sorry, uh, no more food? You do that? You don't, right? You go and tell a member of the family first. And the second thing about it is that they knew she, they recognized who she was. She had authority. So she must have been an authority figure in a wedding, meaning that it was probably, she was probably the matriarch, the aunt, you know, and her niece or nephew was getting wed, uh, married, and she was, uh, everyone looked to her as the big aunt. So she must have had authority because that's why they ran to her. She had authority. And we know she had authority because she told the servants, whatever Jesus says to you, do. That means she can exercise her authority. And the final reason why we know this must be the relative's wedding, or relative of Mary's wedding, is because Jesus and his brothers were there. Hey, come on. Do you bring all your brothers and sisters to your friend's wedding? 
You don't, right? Yeah, you don't, right? Do you do it in KL? No, okay, I just want to make sure. We don't do it in KK either, you know, so just want to make sure. It's the same in the Middle East. You don't bring your whole family to a, you know, a, some stranger's wedding or a friend's wedding. It has to be family. And so when you work it back, it has to be one of the close relatives of Mary. And therefore, she had authority in that. So we've now established. Now, as we come to the four principles, the four keys, I want to give you four keys uh, by which you receive your miracle, okay? I want to give you. But here's the first thing. Whatever the keys I'm going to give you, all the four keys, I want you to understand the basic posture by which you must, re- the, you must have a basic posture to receive your miracle, okay? And the basic posture is to look with your heart. Everybody say, look with your heart. Say it loud, look with your heart. Turn to your neighbor and say, look with your heart. See, see, the whole posture is look with your heart. Because you see, otherwise we look with our eyes, we look with our minds, and then we try to work it out. And it doesn't happen. The playwright and, 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 and musical director, Andrew Lloyd Webber, you know? Phantom of the Opera, you know, Cats and all that kind of things. He, he wrote a play called Love Never Dies. And in one of the songs that sung, These are the words, look with your heart, not with your eyes. The heart understands, the heart never lies. Believe what it feels, trust what it shows. Look with your heart, your heart always knows. There's something about the heart. Now, let me put it in perspective. The Bible says the heart is desperately wicked and corrupt. No one can understand it. So I don't mean when we look with our heart, we look with our carnal self. Do you understand that? The book of Jeremiah, which says this verse, actually talks about our carnal self. The heart, all our agenda, our motives is just desperately corrupt and wicked. When I say look with our heart, I mean it look with your spirit in contradistinction to your mind, as opposed to your mind. You, let your mind just rest for a while. Just look with your spirit. Look with your heart. Look with your heart, not with your eyes. The heart understands. The heart never lies. Believe what it feels. Trust what it shows. Look with your heart. Your heart always knows. So here's a fundamental posture of the four keys in order to receive our miracle. The first thing you must understand that posture is to look with your heart. And here's the first key. The first key is when you come into a situation that needs a miracle, the first thing to do is look at Jesus. Look to him. Look to Jesus. This is what happened. When the servants came to Mary and said, you know, we, we have no wine. It's crisis time. It's really crisis. Mary's immediate response, any person's immediate response is, we have no wine. This is, this is, this is, you know, it really is, it's incredible. It's just a disaster in the making now. Within an hour, it'll be a disaster. There's, there's no more wine. So what's the natural response to this? Uh, has anybody got wine in this village? Did you know, has, has anybody got a storehouse of wine right now? Is there a wine merchant that's still open right now? By the way, can I borrow, tell me where I can borrow some quick, some quick bottles of wine. We will go into the natural first. That's our natural tendency. Mary didn't do that. They came and told her, we have no wine, we have no wine, we have no wine. She went straight to Jesus. We have no wine. With her heart. See, all her mind tells her, she should go and get a wine merchant, go and borrow. She went straight to Jesus. We have no wine. It's the same with us, you see. We come out of the doctor's office, it's a bad diagnosis. What do we think of first? I want another specialist. I want another opinion. I want another... How about... That's how our mind thinks. How about Jesus, going up to Jesus? and saying, Jesus, they have said this is the diagnosis. See, when, we, when we're in a business and things are not going well, and the credit is coming after us and our, our cash flow is low, what do we think of us? I need another bank, I need another line, I need another overdraft, I need another loan. Can you find me a friendly bank manager? It's natural. We will look for all these things. Our mind will tell us all these things. How about looking to Jesus? Jesus, I have no money. You see, when we have a broken relationship and things are going really bad, really wrong with our life and our studies, you know, we, we were like, you know, 
right now, we, we've done our best and it's somehow it's not worked out. I mean, it, I need another girlfriend just to fill up. Can you find another girl who can go out because I'm very lonely? It's Jesus, you know. My girlfriend's left me, but I believe you're in control. Or you're doing badly in your studies right now and you, you can't understand what's going on and, and you're having great challenges with your studies. Uh, can you find another tutor? Nothing wrong with any of these things. But Jesus, I want to come back to you again. You brought me to this college to study. I believe you will see me through. Jesus, I failed my exams. So you see, but, but how do you get this posture? This posture must come from your heart. It cannot come from your mind. Because your mind will tell you 10 other things you should do. But the miracle started when Mary went to Jesus with her heart and said, we have no wine. When her mind tells her, quick, quick, the clock is ticking down. You've got to get your wine. You've got to get your wine. Get a wine merchant. Get. We have no wine. Look with your heart, not with your eyes. A heart understands. A heart never lies. Here's the second key, okay? Look beyond his apparent non-response. Because when Mary went to Jesus and said, we have no wine, Jesus said to her, in an apparent non-response, what has this to do with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. Excuse me, we're in a crisis, there's no wine. When your clock is ticking down, you need to get wine. What has this to do with me, woman? My hour has not come. What? What? It's almost a tangential, nonchalant, non-response. Now, just want to tell you, God is still speaking in his non-response. You're broken up with your girlfriend and things are very lonely and bad for you. You're just in, in pain. And you say, God, I, I have lost my girlfriend. I've lost, you know, I, it's broken up. I remember you're in control. You're still in that room alone. You are still alone. Still, the pain is still there. God, don't you hear me? Non-response. I'm looking for the bank manager's line. I need that line by the end of this week. You break a few phone calls. Non-response. You got a bad back pain. You're praying for God to heal you. Then you get into your car. You know, you hardly can squeeze yourself into the front seat of the car to drive off. It's so painful. Then you slip your key into the ignition and the battery is flat. What? God, did you hear me? It's a non-response. You come out of the doctor's office with a bad diagnosis and you know, you, I mean, suddenly everything is black. You know, it's, it's a life and death diagnosis and then you have kids playing along the road and they kick a ball and it hits your head and then the ball goes up to a tree or something and, and the kids are asking you, can you take the ball down? Come on, it's just like, it's the least important thing to be. Don't you think there are more important things in life, God? You take the ball down. What kind of response? It's a non-response. You have to see beyond God's non-response. Do you understand me? So when Mary came to God, and to Jesus, Jesus said, what has it to do with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. She, she looked beyond the non-response, the apparent non-response. She has already made the, the, the request known to, to Jesus. She turned around to all the servants and said, whatever he says to you, you do it. Ooh. And you see, in the midst of non-response, you say, God, you just speak. Whenever you're ready to speak, and you tell me, I'm okay, I'll do it. I'm not insisting that you answer now. You know, whatever you say to me, do it. By the way, this phrase, woman, what does this do with me? My hour is not yet come. Some people actually quote it when their mothers ask them to take out the trash. They say, woman, what does this do with me? My hour has not yet come. Don't ever quote it at your mother, okay? And don't say, Pastor Philip told you this, okay? Then the mother said, Cheeky, where do you get it from? It's in the Bible, you know. Uh, Jesus said it. It's a non-response. So look beyond his non-response because every miracle that you need, there's a non-response time. Nothing seems to be happening. You get off your feet praying, it's still the same. But you must keep looking. And the only way you can keep looking is with your heart. If you look with your mind, ayah, he doesn't want to do anything lah. Jesus said, what well, what has to do with me? My eyes not, I forget it. You must look at your heart. If you look at your mind, it ain't going to work. Let me tell you the story of Jean Crider. Jean Crider, 
her baby was born with club feet. And uh, she, she, she didn't know what to do. So at the age of five months, she took the baby to, to the doctor. And the doctor said to her, Jean, I'm so sorry to tell you, this club feet, your child will never walk again. And he will have several operations, but we've never corrected. And he will, just, he will never play basketball, he'll never play football, he'll never do. And Jean was so devastated, she wanted to just throw the baby and herself under a tram when she came out of the doctor's office. But she thought about another child she had, so she didn't do that. And then somebody told her about Catherine Kuhlman rally. So she decided to, she was not a believer, she decided to visit a Catherine Kuhlman rally. And she saw people getting out wheelchairs and walking. And you know, she had wrapped her baby up in a shawl because she wanted to make sure nobody saw those, those ugly club feet. But every time during the rally, she would look at the club, the club feet, nothing happened. Nothing happened. And she went, she left that rally that night, nothing happened. And that, but she listened to Catherine Kuhlman over the radio. She listened to radio broadcast, and through the radio broadcast, she gave her heart to Jesus. But then she would believe and ask God to heal her baby, heal her baby, heal her baby. But nothing happened. Month after month after month, nothing happened. Heal the baby. Nothing happened. And every time she'd pray, she would just look at the baby, unwrap the, the shawl and look at the feet. And then one day her husband, who was not a believer, came back and saw her doing that and said, if you believe in your God, you should just believe your God heals your baby and don't look all the time. And he says, every time you look, it's like you believe God will grow your plant. You planted it, and every day you pull it up by the roots and look at it again to see whether it's growing. And with that, even the husband was a pre-believer, hit on this truth uh, in Mark 11, which says, whatever I say to you, whatever you ask, believe that you receive. Believe. You don't see results, but believe. And you can have them. And so from that day, she stopped looking. Every time she prayed. And weeks went into months. Now the baby was 16, 17 months old. And she continued to listen to the radio program. And then one day, one day, she felt faith come into her. Faith come into her. She heard Catherine Kuhlman say, your source of your healing is not in a thing or an object or in a, in a mantra, but in no other person than the very son of the living God. And with that, faith grew in her. She turned to her baby, stretched out her arm, and said the same thing she had said hundreds and hundreds of times before. She said to the baby, come to mommy. And the baby got up and walked towards her and was completely healed. And that man is still walking the streets in the United States today, completely healed. But there is a period of a non-response. Here's the third key. The third key is, you know, look to Jesus first. Number two, look beyond the non-response. And the third thing is, look to do whatever he tells you to do. Okay, Mary said to the, to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, you must understand, those were the days before running water. And, you know, water pots, huge water pots are there, filled with water. They have to take it from a well, a village well, down you know, down in the valley somewhere where the wells are. That's quite a distance away. There's huge, six huge water pots. There's a lot of work to be done. The servants, wow, oh my goodness, what a pain. We have to go and get the water because most of the water pots are quite empty now. People use the water pots to wash themselves before they get into the wedding feast. So you can see most of it is very empty, almost empty now. And they have to go down and do all that hard work, get all the pitchers of water, come back, you know, fill, and then go down again and do it many times. It's hard work. Sometimes when God asks you to do something, it, it's just hard. Like, God, God will ask you to do just something and you just don't want to do it because it's, it's just hard. But it is when they did that, the servants did that. And you know, by the way, the person who had the faith was not the servants. It was Mary who had the faith. You agree with me? Yes. Because if, if, if nothing happened, if nothing happened, no miracles, uh, then, you know, it was Mary putting her head on a chopping block. It was Mary. She was, taking, she was taking all the responsibility. She was taking all the faith. The servants were just doing as they were told. So, look to do whatever he tells you to do. Sometimes it can be strange. He can ask you to, you know, just... <clears throat> have seen people being healed. That's you, that's seen a person being healed. That, that, the story of... Uh, have you ever heard of a man called Smith Wigglesworth? Smith Wigglesworth, he was a gruff plumber from Yorkshire who lived in the 1800s. 
you know, he learned he was illiterate, and his wife had to teach him to read by teaching him the Bible. That's how he learned to read. But Smith Wigglesworth carried an incredible anointing as a man of God, a healer. But because of his rough way, he was, he was you know, uneducated. He was a plumber. Um, he was very rough in his ministry. You know, he didn't use kind of, you know, good English. It was very rough. For example, people line up at the end of his uh, ministry and he would say, all those, you've got problems, just come forward. You got, God will heal you. And it's very rough. It's just him, you know. And then he comes to a woman and a woman says, uh, stands in the cube and, and she says, so what's wrong with you, ma'am? And she said, um, uh, the woman said, ah, I've got pain in my stomach. I've got stomach cancer. Well, then, in the name of Jesus, she pushes the stomach. Mm. Be healed. And she falls under the power. And the husband's rushing up from the back on to punch him, you know. <laughs> and the woman gets up and says, darling, I'm healed, I'm healed. Whatever he says to you, do it. But don't do it unless God tells you to, okay? <laughs> Otherwise, you won't be doing healing ministry. You'll be doing prison ministry, okay? <laughs> and people got healed like that. Whatever he says to you, just do it. Uh, uh, you know, a woman waiting at a bus there, and she's having this bad arthritic hip. And you know, she's got so many healing meetings and no, she doesn't get healed. You know, the paranormal response. And then she's waiting for a bus and then she sees this boy chewing gum. You know, one of these Gen Z guys, you know, you know on his smartphone chewing gum. And he's got a bit of a, you know, colored hair and got earrings, a bit of tattoos, but he's a Christian. But the Lord, he, she doesn't know. She just, but the Lord tells her, ask him to pray for you. Um, pray for, I mean, this guy's got tattoos, got earrings, he's got, you know, he's, he's chewing gum. Uh, <laughs> No, I've got a bad, you know, I've got a bad hip. Would you, would you mind praying for me? She asked. Praying? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, I pray for God to heal your hip. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, right, yeah, good day, yeah. <laughs> and she, she, the hip pain is not gone. She gets onto the bus. She limps onto the bus. And when the bus journey ends, she comes off the bus at a point of stop. The pain's gone. You see, these are the things that miracles happen. Whatever he says to you, just do it. You understand me? Now, uh, we had a healing service in Skyline many years ago, and uh, there was a woman who had, you know, had fallen down while she was in the last stage of pregnancy, broken her tailbone. It was very painful. And when she delivered by cesarean section, she couldn't carry the baby with her because she could hardly walk. It was very painful walking because she had a broken tailbone. Couldn't sit down, she had to lie in bed, you know, cushions all over and nurse the baby for a month, a month and a half. She never came to church because she could hardly walk, could hardly bear to walk. Then she heard we were holding a healing service. And then the Spirit of God, I had visited her many times, prayed for her, never got healed. All our pastors went, never got healed. Elders went, never got healed. You know, and, and then, you know, that day she heard the Spirit of God say, go to that healing service. You know, you, know, you must understand, she's not been to church for six, six weeks after her delivery. And then I was preaching at the healing service and I saw her come through the back door, glass door. You know what she had, you know, because Skyline is actually in a, in a hotel, uh, you have to go through this very grand staircase to come up to the, to, to, to the, uh, to the church. And this is how she, she told her husband, I'm going to the meeting. Her husband said, you can hardly walk, you're in pain. I said, don't worry, you look after the baby, I'm just going to, I just feel God wants me to go. So her husband dropped her at the entrance and she walked she pulled herself hand over hand over the railings and pulled herself up to the third floor where we were. Walked through that door and I thought, my goodness, my God, where, why did she hear her? You know, I, you know, my faith, oh, little faith, I saw her. And she came and sat down and during the time of the ministry for people to come up, she struggled up to the front and one of my executive pastors laid hands on her. She fell under the power. And the moment I saw her fall under the power, I went to the executive pastor and said, please get off, she got a broken tailbone, get out. She sat there and dusted herself off, and she says, it's gone. And she started running around the whole auditorium. You can imagine what happened that night. We were just erupted, you know, in faith level. I said, why did you come? She says, God just told me, go, because I'm going to heal you. So she came. How difficult was that? Very, very difficult. Sometimes God asks you to do some things a little bit outside your experiential grid. And your comfort zone. It can be potentially embarrassing. It can be potentially stepping out and asking somebody for something. It could be potentially just doing something that's hard. Sometimes it's very easy. Sometimes it's potentially embarrassing. But whatever he says to you, what? Do it. Do it. 
And that's how the healing take place, took place. Do you know? And here's the fourth key to receive your miracle. To receive your miracle, look to step out in faith and receive it. You need to step out in faith. And you know, like the woman, whatever he says, you do it, you have a choice. Before you get onto the bus, you're going to ask this teenager who's got, who's got uh, tattoos and earrings to pray for you, are you not? But if you step out your faith, out of your comfort zone, and do it, then the miracle begins to take place. I don't understand why God works like that. It just is. I don't understand. If you ask me how to do miracles, I'll give you five principles, and every time it works 100%, supposing. But God's principles are beyond what the mind can think. He is God. He's free to do it His way. Can somebody say amen? amen. But I still, I still unpack some of the principles for you. And so this is what they, 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 Mary said. You know, whatever it says to you, do it. And Jesus now says to the servants who had filled up the, 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 the six jars of 30 gallons each and said, now I want you to take, take what? Water or what? It's still water. Take it, put it into a pitcher and go and serve the guests. Now, it's Mary's head on the block. Whatever he says to you, do it. Servant says, we do it all. You know, if suddenly, you know, the, the, the wedding feast master just spits it out and says, this is water, whose head is on a chopping block? It's Mary's. It's, it's not the servant's. So they did what they were told. They, they, they dished out the water into a pitcher and then they carried that pitcher. Now, if you read the original Greek text, it suggests that somewhere between the fishing out of the water into the pitchers to the presentation of the pitchers, the wine, to the master of the feast, somewhere in that process, the water became wine. You don't know when, how, but it became wine. So they went. Whatever he says to you, do it. So they stepped out to receive the miracle. And they now poured, as they poured out that water in their jars, into the cup of the master of the feast, it was wine. That's how it appeared. It was wine. And the servants were probably just like, wow. And then, now is the test, the real test. The master of the feast now tastes it. That's the real test. Because it's still in the colored water, that's all. He tastes it. And he says, this is really good wine. Oh my God. You know, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. You know, people serve this, this kind of wine at the beginning of the feast. Not towards the end when everybody is drunk and they don't care what kind of wine. It's the beginning of the feast. Where, where do you get this wine? Oh, they just said, there's a guy outside, you know, he asked us to do this. Ah, don't worry about the guy outside, but, but you know, just, just bring the rest of the wine in. My God, he's drinking it. He says, my God, smells it, swirls it, drinks it again. He says, I just remember this vintage. It's, it's the finest vintage there is. It is, it is, it is Chateau Lafitte. 30 BC, that is. And that's how the miracle took place. That's how the miracle took place. You step out. It's a big risk. Head on chopping block. You might be embarrassed. But you obeyed what he said. And that's how the miracle took place. Let me tell you how miracles are. Because people say to me, if God is doing all these miracles, why don't we get it reported in Malaysia Kini? Why is it not reported in, you know, the, the internet portals? Why is it not reported in the, in the Malaysian newspapers like the New Straits Times or the Star? Excuse me, do you believe all the things, the headlines in newspapers or not? You believe I'm Malaysia? I will tell you, the only page in the newspaper, in Malaysian newspapers that I believe in is the back page. Sports page. Okay, you right? Manchester City 4, yeah? Chelsea nil. Ah, that's true. That's true. Uh, yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. Because everything else in between the front and back page, mostly uh, cannot believe one. True or not? You believe everything newspapers say? You don't. People say, oh, why there's no news newspaper? Why is it that if, if there was so much spectacular? Why is it not newspapers? I will tell you this. It's not in newspapers for three reasons. Number one, the miracles of God are spectacular, but they are silent. Jesus converted water into wine. H2O into C2H5OH. <laughs> All right, that's a bit of your chemistry. Turn to your neighbor and say, I knew that formula. <laughs> you look at the difference. Now, it's not just a color change. There is a chemical change. Water, H2O, has no carbon atoms. 
Jesus has to create carbon atoms from hydrogen. Do you realize that? That is spectacular. But it's silent as we're carrying it. You change. Do you know how to convert hydrogen to carbon scientifically? Hydrogen is converted to carbon eventually, firstly, by being converted to helium. And then the helium fuses in a thermonuclear fusion to form carbon. You know why it happens? In the center of the sun. 100 million degrees Celsius. Then you will get this reaction taking place from helium to carbon. But somewhere between the carrying of the pictures, it happened. It's spectacular. But it's silent. That's why the press doesn't get hold of it. That's the nature of God's miracles. You, you look at the miracles of Jesus. When he stilled the storm, who saw it? Only the 12 disciples. Hey, come on, Jesus. Don't you think it's a better way of showing off your supernatural powers so that people will follow you and, and see you as a, as a Messiah? You know, you want to convince the whole world you're Messiah? Why don't you arrange to a storm to brew and to, and to blow through, you know, during the Feast of the tabernacles, when the whole of the country is there gathered in Jerusalem, do it in Jerusalem. Stand at the top of the temple so that everybody can see you and you command the storm to start. Storm, start! And you start swirling around, huge storms, thunderstorms, wind, and then you stand up, lift up your hand and say, be still! And then everybody go, bravo! Now I believe in the Messiah. Oh, you're the Messiah. Jesus, why did you do that? I don't know. It's just not his style. Actually, Jesus, why did you come in the first century AD? Eh? Why didn't you come in the 21st century in the year 2019? Because there's internet, there's smartphones, there's digital media, there's social media, there's everything. You know, Jesus, you just put this short video clip of you stealing the storm on Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and everything. Immediately in Facebook, you know, you get 3 billion likes. Immediately. Well, I don't know. I, I guess Jesus realizes that people who put likes are not necessarily people who will follow you to the death as disciples. Yeah. True or not? Come on, yeah. Come on. Yeah. you guys know it, right? Yeah. So that's why Jesus knew all this Facebook following is bogus. He just knew it. That's why he didn't come first century AD, I think. I don't know. But I can think of 10 other ways how Jesus should demonstrate his power. But why do you show your power to just 12, 12 disciples? Only they saw it. It's spectacular because he's still the storm. It's very silent. That's why you don't get it reported in newspapers, my friends. Here's the second thing about the miracles. It's very public, but it's very personal as well. It's very public. You think of a guy called Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus was a blind man, born blind, outside the walls of Jericho. And he, Jesus walks by, and this man's been begging all his life. He's been blind all his life, begging there. And he hears Jesus walking by, and he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. Jesus walks by, and eventually Jesus comes to him and says, what do you want me to do? He says, my eyes, right by my eyes. And Jesus said, well, then be healed. And everybody saw the healing of Bartimaeus and said, wow, bravo, that's very good. Okay, let's go into Jericho now. Time to move on. And in Jericho, he met Zacchaeus because the crowds are following him. If you're a member of the crowd and you saw Bartimaeus being healed, you said, that was a good show. That was a good magic show. That's great. I'm so glad for Bartimaeus. Okay, let's move on to the next thing Jesus wants to do. Most of us will be like that. But for Bartimaeus, it's everything. Everything. For him. It's public, it's personal. You know, sometimes when miracles happen in your life, you, you have an ex experience, you try to explain to somebody, it falls flat, right? Somehow, you, God did this for me. It just falls flat. Because to you, it is incredible work of God. But when you try to explain it, people say, oh, okay, good, 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 good. But actually, they don't understand it fully. They patronize you and say, good, good, good. But actually, they're not in the same spirit with you. It's very public, but it's very personal. The same with the woman with the issue of blood. You know, she was there crawling on, wasting all her money for 12 years, spent all her money on doctors. Okay. <laughs> and she touched Jesus' hem of the government, and she was healed. 
And you know, Jesus was on his way to Jairus' house that time to heal Jairus' daughter who was dying. Remember that? And you can imagine Jairus, he's getting impatient because he wants Jesus to go. Come on, Jesus, come on. Jesus gets stuck with this woman. And you know, okay, go heal her now. Go, 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 go. For him, it's nothing because he's a member of the public. It's public. So, so what's the big show? This woman got healed from an issue of blood or from her bleeding problems. You can't even see very much. You got healer. Healer. Oh, good, good, good. Healer. It's, it's very public, you see. It's meaningless to the rest of you. But for the woman, it's everything. That's how it is. That's why you don't get it reported in the sun or the star or the Straits Times or internet portals. It's everything. You know, and it's the third and final thing. It is public but personal. Okay, but just let me just say, just prove it to you. <clears throat> the only people who believe in this Jesus after the, after the conversion of water into wine were his disciples. Because the Bible tells us that in verse 11. But who were disciples? Actually, there were only four disciples at that time. Peter and Andrew, Philip and Nathaniel. There were no four disciples. Jesus had not chosen his 12 disciples yet in John chapter 2. Only four guys. Wow, my goodness, it's a spectacular miracle. It's a public miracle. But you know, only a few people were convinced. How do we know that? The proof of that is when Jesus came back to Cana a second time. John chapter 4 now. Two chapters later, Jesus came back to Cana a second time. You know what? You, if, if the whole public and everyone, the crowds were convinced, huh, you would have crowds waiting for him. No, when he came back to Cana the second time. In John chapter 4, only one person came. It's proof. It's proof, but it's public, it's personal. Only the four disciples believed him out of this miracle. Because when he came, the only person who greeted him in Cana was the nobleman. And he came from Capernaum, for goodness sake. He didn't come from Cana. He was not a Canaanite. He came from Capernaum. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, come back, come to Capernaum. Can you heal my son who's dying? Only one person. The crowds weren't there. It's proof that when things are done publicly by God, they're often very personal. Only a few people get convinced and convicted and believe. And here's the final thing about the miracles. They're abiding, they're abundant, yet abiding. When Jesus converted water into wine, do you know what? There were six, there were six uh, huge pots of 30 gallons each. It's 180 gallons. That converts to 681.3 liters, which converts to almost 1,000 bottles of wine. Excuse me, do you need 1,000 bottles of wine for a village wedding? Do you need or not? I mean, you drink until tomorrow or the day after or next week so you cannot finish. Do you know, 1,000 bottles of wine, you know, is royal wedding numbers. It is enough, assuming each one drinks 250 mils, which is a very good amount. It's enough to give you, to, to, to actually feast for 2,700 people. We have a village wedding, got 2,700 people and all. The royal wedding in 1947, Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. You know how many guests were there? 2,000 only. Jesus made enough wine for 2,700 guests. It's a village wedding, for goodness sake, Jesus, don't you know? It's not a royal wedding. It is abundant. And it is abiding. It goes on. Because those guys, they got so much wine left over. Oh, <laughs> next week, so can I have another wedding? <laughs> Following week, so can I have another wedding? You know, there's still enough to go on. You know, who wants to get married? Got free wine. <laughs> Could have gone on. That's the nature of God's generosity. He not only does this miracle, it's abundant but it's abiding. In the year 2004, our daughter was found strangulated on a clothesline, accidentally. She was brought down dead. We have three children. Sarah was our youngest child. She was four years old when she was found accidentally strangulated on a clothesline in a violin teacher's house. When she was brought down, we don't know how long she was up there, but probably five, seven, eight minutes, we don't know. But she, when she was brought down, she was dead. She was dead. And that's when I received the call from my clinic, uh, in my clinic, to come straight away. 
As I drove there, the Spirit of God spoke to me to speak life into my child. Everything was bleak. It was terrible. I even got there before the ambulance. That was how good ambulance services were, you know, back in KK. It was, I got there before the ambulance. And, and when we got there, the first thing I did was to speak life into Sarah. Really spoke life into her. I didn't even do CPR. I just spoke life because the Spirit of God told me what to do. Whatever He says to you, do. Whatever He says to you, do. Whatever He says to you, do. So right now, as I spoke that, life came back to him. Life came back. And she came back. When she came back to life, you know, she started breathing again, but she had all the signs of permanent brain damage. Her face was totally black. There was a, a deep noose mark around her neck. Eventually we got her to the hospital, but we knew that all the damage had been done. She had signs of permanent brain damage. Uh, you medical guys, she, she had uh, severe decorticate positions of her limbs, which is a sign of massive higher brain damage for her. And so she was in a coma in a hospital overnight. The church came to pray. But God did a miracle. God did a miracle, and it's an incredible miracle. I don't have time to tell you all the story. Yeah? But the next morning, next morning at 4 o'clock in the morning, she woke up completely healed, totally healed. She came back totally healed. You know, she could read, she could see, she could do so many things. But the proof of the pudding is always in the eating, isn't it? What is it like? That was when she was four years old. That was 17 years ago. The proof of the pudding is, what is Sarah like today? Today. Well, this is Sarah today, okay? This is Sarah today. She's 21 years old. She's in the fourth year in medical school, okay? And she is training to be a doctor so that she can give life to somebody else. What has God done? What has God done? It is not just abundant that God has restored her back to us, but abiding is still is healing her and she's come more. People say, is Sarah been healed 100%? I say 101%. When God does something, it's not just abundant, it abides to today. How many of you would like to see God do a miracle in your life? Can I see your hand? How many of you want and need a miracle in your life? Can I see your hands? Lift it up in the air. Put your hands down right now. But the greatest miracle that can ever happen, all heads bowed, all eyes closed, is if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That's the greatest miracle. The entry point into miracles is knowing Jesus in your heart. 2,000 years ago, a lonely figure hung on a cross. His name was Jesus. He took your sins and mine on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins so that you can be set free today. Today, Jesus stands at the door of your heart. He's alive today. He's risen from the dead. He stands at the door of your heart and He says, will you open the door of your heart to me? Because if you open the door of your heart, He will come into your heart, fill you with His new life, fill you with His love, give you a new life, and cleanse you from your past and your sins. If today you say, Pastor Philip, I want to give my heart to Jesus. You have never given your heart to Jesus before. Or maybe you have given, but in the past you have backslided, you've gone away from the Lord. But today you want to reopen your heart and you just want to recommit your life to Jesus. Then at the count of three, I'm going to ask you to put up your hands. And you just lift it up high and just look at me. All heads bowed, all eyes closed. Those people only. You lift up your hands and look, lift it up high and look at me at the count of three. And you say, Jesus, I want to give you my open door of my heart to you today. I want to invite you to be my Lord, my Saviour. I, I want to recommit my life to you. Then at the count of three, you lift your hand to God today and I will acknowledge the hand. You lift it up and look at me. Are you ready now? And then look at me. One, lift it up. Two, three. Just lift it up right now. And look at me right now. Just look at me right now. I will acknowledge the hand. I see the hand over there. My brother, God bless you. God is speaking to you and He will do a tremendous, miraculous work in your life because He is, he is your Lord. As you open the door, He will come in, fill you with His life and love. My sister, in the name of Jesus, I see the hand of God upon you and God's grace upon you. God says, forget the past, come back 
to him in the present in the name of Jesus right now praise God thank the Lord you may put down your hands anyone else I see hand over there young man God bless you to today God takes this step of commitment to him or recommitment to him and he takes it and turns it into a new road for you in the name of Jesus right now anyone else you want to give your heart to Jesus today right now today it's for you as well my, my sister the Spirit of God is upon you and his love and his life is on you the promises of God to you are yes and amen in him in Jesus name amen anyone else right now anyone else right now if there's none then I'm going to lead you in a very simple prayer right now and I want you to pray this prayer with me and the whole of Harvest Gen. Can you join me in this prayer as our brothers and sisters pray to recommit their life to Jesus or to open their hearts to Jesus for the first time? Are you ready now? Say, pray it aloud. Ready? Father God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he died for me on the cross. Rose again from the dead to forgive my sins and to give me life, eternal life. Today with my mouth, I confess that Jesus is Lord and with my heart I believe that God raised him from the dead so with my confession and by faith I am saved Jesus come and fill my life fill me with your love fill me with your forgiveness fill me with your goodness I receive your Holy Spirit right now come and live in me be my Lord, my Savior, my Master. In Jesus' name I pray. All God's people said, Amen. Please stand up on your feet right now. Please stand up on your feet right now. I'm going to ask how many of you, you want a miracle from the Lord Jesus? You want a miracle for your life right now? You need a miracle. You need a miracle. Stand up right now. I'm going to pray that each one of you right now, I want to give, you know, here I want you to understand. That you know, you've got to look with your heart, not with your eyes. Everybody say, look with my heart. Say, look with my heart. I will look with my heart, not with the eyes. God is speaking to you right now. Look to Jesus for your miracles. Just look to Him first. Look to Him first. Look beyond God's non-response. Some of you have been waiting. Look beyond God's non-response. Continue to look to Him with your heart. Don't let your mind dictate to you about the non-response. Look beyond the non-response. Look beyond the non-response right now. Number three, look to do whatever He tells you to do. Look beyond and look to do whatever He tells you. He will speak to you. And number four, step out of your comfort zone. Just step and receive your miracle. I'm not saying when, I'm not saying how. God knows this. But it, will be, it may be public, but it will be very personal. Amen. It may be spectacular, but it's very silent. It will be abundant, and yet it will abide. Amen. If that's your desire, lift up your hand. I want you to, if that's your desire for miracle, lift up your hand. I want you to begin to thank God right now. Just thank God. Just thank God you are the God of the miracles. Thank you, Lord. Shakara Baharada. Begin to say, thank you, Lord. You are the God of the miracles. You are the God who just works exceedingly abundantly. You are the God who is able to do more than. You are the God who is able to come into every situation. You are the God who does outstanding miracles again and again and again and again. Lord, we just give you praise. Lord, I just pray in the name of Jesus for that miracle to come true for every life in the name of Jesus. Lord, we just give you praise in the name of Jesus. So right now, I want to pray this simple prayer as we declare. Say, Father God, thank you that you are the God of miracles. Today I lift up my hands. I open my heart. Lord, I need a miracle. I need miracles in these areas of my life. Bring these areas before the Lord right now. And now continue with me. And say, Lord, I will not look with my mind. I will look with my heart.
Jesus, I look to you. I will look beyond these silent moments. Even when you are silent, I will look beyond them. I will listen to do what you say and step out of my comfort zone. And I believe, I believe you're the God of miracles. That I will start in your time. That I will in your time step into my miracles. For this, I give you praise. I give you glory. I give you honor. I give you worship. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been brought to you by Harvest Generation Church. We hope you've been blessed and encouraged.